0: Welcome to the Modern Art Notes Podcast. I'm Tyler Green. Before we get to this week's show, one of those things I'm not real great at always remembering to ask you to help us out with. If you listen to the show on iTunes or Spotify or, well, almost anywhere else, it would be great if you could give us a five-star rating and a review. really helps new people find the show. Thanks. This week, Harmony Hammond. She's featured in three exhibitions around the United States this summer. The Aldridge Contemporary Art Museum in Ridgefield, Connecticut, it's showing Harmony Hammond, Material Witness, Five Decades of Art, a survey of Hammond's career. The show, which was curated by Amy Smith-Stewart, will be on view in Connecticut through September 5th. The excellent catalog, the first hardcover monograph on Hammond's career, was published by the Aldrich and Gregory R. Miller. Amazon offers it for $45. You can buy it through a link at manpodcast.com. Hammond is also included in two major historical surveys in other parts of America this summer, Art After Stonewall 1969-89 is at both the Gray Art Gallery at New York University and the Leslie Lohman Museum of Gay and Lesbian Art. It closes at the Gray on July 20th at the Leslie Lohman the next day. Art After Stonewall surveys the impact the LGBTQ movement had on visual art and culture in the two decades after the Stonewall Rebellion. It was curated by Jonathan Weinberg, Tyler Kahn, and Drew Sawyer for the Columbus Museum of Art, which organized the exhibition. It'll travel to the Frost in Miami, before arriving in Columbus. Hammond is also in Queer Abstraction, which is on view at the Des Moines Art Center through September 8th. The exhibition, which was curated by Gerald Ledesma, examines how LGBTQ artists have used abstraction to address sexuality and gender. It'll travel to the Nurman Museum of Contemporary Art in Overland Park, Kansas. An exhibition catalog is forthcoming. On the second segment, Annika Yee. But first, Harmony Hammond, after the break. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston continues its annual summer series of immersive exhibitions. William Forsyth Choreographic Objects transforms the galleries into a series of performance spaces welcoming visitors of all ages. From a monumental environment of shifting pendulums to a single object held in the hand, Forsyth's work blurs the lines between performance, sculpture, video, and installation, connecting participants to the organizing principles of choreography. Now on view, visit mfah.org slash Forsyth for more. Experience Sheila Hicks Sees Weave Space on view at the Nasher Sculpture Center through August 18th. This site-specific fiber installation of the American-born, Paris-based artist transforms the Nasher Sculpture Center and galleries with her use of supple and pliable materials. With a career spanning more than six decades, Hicks continues to push perceptions of art beyond traditional associations and uses fiber to create sculptures and objects that give material form to color. Learn more at NasherSculptureCenter.org. And we're back. Harmony Hammond, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Hi, Tyler. I want to start with your presence works from from the early 1970s. They were made shortly after you arrived in, in New York from the Midwest, and short, and as I understand the timeline, you made them shortly after you joined a feminist consciousness raising group in New York. Before then, you'd been making shaped abstract canvases. And that confluence of, event- of events got me wondering what that group brought to your practice and how quickly or not quickly you incorporated what you were learning and sharing in that group into your studio.
1: Well, the group The group, which was primarily composed of other women artists, feminists artists who identified as feminists, was hugely important to the work. And we started meeting in 1970. I arrived in New York in the fall of 1969 and sometime in 1970, I don't remember what month it was but we started meeting as a we called ourselves just an art consciousness raising group because most of us were practicing visual artists and because our group was formed in the context of the larger women's liberation movement and there were all kinds of feminist consciousness raising groups forming there was a lot of a lot of examination and looking at you know the oppression of women by the patriarchy, and it specifically in our group or in the feminist art movement, we began to look at how women, women artists, and women as subjects uh, in artworks, or women as the maker of artworks, were discriminated against in in the art world, but also art historically. So in my group, we we didn't have a name for the group. We were not a political action group. We were a group that got together once a week to share our work and talk about the issues raised in the work and to critique the work. And this, of course, like like I said, was in the context of the larger feminist movement. So there was a lot happening at that time. It was, first of all, on a simplistic level, hugely important that we were taking each other seriously enough to sit down and talk with each other. Until then, women artists didn't value each other enough to even have conversations with each other. So now women were talking to other women, and women artists were talking to other women artists. And so it was saying our lives, our feelings, modes of expression, our work is important and serious. So that's a very simplistic level, but it was huge at the time. And what began to come from those conversations were looking at the work from a gendered perspective. And in the group, all of us, including myself, began to, you know, open up what had been the received narrative of 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 western art that we all were trained in and we began to look at materials and techniques maybe signs symbols that reflected uh women's experiences in this world basically you know and so most of the artists in my group we worked most of us worked pretty abstractly we looked to materials and the way they were manipulated to bring content into the work, and so we, like many of the art feminist artists outside our group, began looking to the textile arts or the decorative arts, and looking outside of that canon that we had been trained in for both approaches, both formal approaches strategies as you will to to make work. And for, for for references and subject matter, and looking at looking at creative traditions that had been devalued or erased, basically. And so, for myself, that's how I came to start working with fabric, looking at fabrics, textiles. Actually, before working with fabric, I but ha- having moved to New York and having come out of working with hard edge. Abstract acrylic paintings, I started looking at art made in non Western cultures. And that got me very excited at looking at pattern and decoration. And I started to make at that point in time, actually, what we would call pattern paintings. But I never took that. I never became part of the pattern and decoration movement, even though I was sort of on the edges of it. Instead, that interest in, say, textile arts or non-Western arts and other non-Western arts, combined with this new feminist consciousness of looking at materials through a gendered lens and trying to develop how did you use those materials to bring content into the work that reflected gender or sexuality. At that time, I started just working with old rags, cast offs, remnants, worn out bedding and clothing from women friends and I would rip the rip their worn out, torn clothing or whatever into strips and then I would dip the strips of fabric into acrylic paint and kind of just throw them down on the floor and then I started beginning to tie them, knot them together, stitch them together, maybe paint on them some more, maybe tie some more on and began to build forms out of these fragments of fabric that came literally from the women in my life. So literally putting the women in my life in my work in the most in that way. It was a very additive technique, and we saw this and discussed it very much as what I'm just describing I was doing in the presence as reflective of what women were doing with their lives at the time, how women's lives were both repetitive but also very fragmented, and how did we take the pieces, how did we connect them both individually within an individual life and within a movement or a class of women and build holes out of it.
0: Yeah, let me jump in on that because the presences as as being foundationally formed from and made from an additive process is something that stays in your work to the present. Works like Bandaged Grid number 1 from 2015 which ha you know which references, you know, kind of the classic pared down 1970s grid structure and then complicates it by adding, adding, and adding to it. Your wrapped sculptures, which we'll talk about in a minute, stuff is being added to them, and then when that's done, more stuff is added to them. I w- vaguely guess that at some point you, in, in 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 the early 70s, you thought about, and probably many times since, about whether w- whether the additive, if you will, <laughs> was core to what you were doing, and you decided it was, and, and was there a point at which you decided it was central or or maybe conversely a point at which you decided not to leave it alone? So
1: I think, you know, there was a back, you know, in the early 70s, I I think I became aware of of the layering and the additive, additive, uh, and and that there was a certain uh, almost power or presence that literally came from the accumulation of things. I also became aware back then that additive uh, way of working I think had to do with my training as a painter because I think when I did make what we would call sculptures, although I think a lot of the work kind of operates in this place between painting and sculpture, but let's call them sculptures, I think my approach is pretty much a painter's approach to sculpture. And by that, I simply meant additive, primarily additive building, whether it's forms out of layers or whether it's like building the layer, the surface itself. And so I had a consciousness of that early on, but I don't think it was an intellectual decision to work that way.
0: That's one of the, I think, really foundational things in the oeuvre is that the visual evidence of the making or the construction of the thing is foregrounded and becomes a metaphor for the labor and the work not just that went into the object but that extends backward back into the career and I think it's you know by far the dominant metaphor in your work and you've hewed to do it for decades and you know when you talk about how you just kind of found that you were working in an additive way it still seems to me that over the course of a fifty year career there there has to become a time when that metaphor becomes important to you for you to hew to it.
1: I mean, I think also I became aware of that because I was pretty lucky early on to get in the 70s because everybody needed to bring a woman artist into a university and say they had a woman there and then send her off again. And I was, a, I and a number of us, we were notches on the patriarchal belts at different art departments around the country. So, you know, let's bring a feminist in and get her in and get her out fast, right? But what that provided, well, it provided a number of things, but one of the things it provided it was an opportunity of course to do it with the art, usual artist talk to present my work and talk about it and and just having that opportunity to do that a while helped me to see some of these things like what you and I are talking about now so i did become aware but i came became aware of it one in the group because that's the way we talked about it which was, like I said, a different way of talking about the work, what we would and we literally referred to it as the work I mean I think a lot of artists in those days we didn 't talk about our art, we talked about our work, it was our work. that way of talking about it started within my group, but then I had this opportunity to talk about it to others outside the group and so I could begin I had a way to see what to step back and see what it is I was doing.
0: Early on uh, in the 70s textiles become important to you and they become important to you both in terms of making art from textiles but also in referencing textiles in wall-mounted works paintings such as pink weave from 1974. So so you're starting with textiles as textiles, and then you're extending textiles into another medium. Were you in the mid-70s aware, as, as we are now looking back, of how many artists who were women were working with fiber, or were you, as far as you knew, just kind of... Pushing forward, doing your thing it's a huge part
1: of the conversation i mean i I certainly wasn't doing it in isolation, no, 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 I mean, that was just like you know one of the things that feminist artists and art historians and art writers we were looking to creative traditions that had been you know erased or ignored or devalued and and women, the the art forms of women, which included women's needle arts and so forth, was one of these huge areas. And so in trying to, you know, develop feminist subjects, uh, subject matter in the work, we looked to these sources. So no, we all looked to it. So my working with fabric at the time was just part of this larger, very exciting conversation at the time. And it's really hard now for anybody to think like, well, that doesn't sound radical in and of itself. But at the time, it was hugely radical because it was a kind of stepping outside the masculine painting site where women as makers or subjects were not really, you know, welcome and it was just saying, well, we don't care, we're going over here. So in, in the group of artists that I interfaced with, we talked a lot about materials and, and in, I mean, many of us came out of postmodern ways of working so we looked at materials and process on the west coast many of the, the feminists who were examining the same thing moved into performance say or the or or, or video or something like that
0: in the late 70s uh, in early 80s you made a spectacular series of wrapped sculptures wherein an armature such as a ladder was wrapped with textile and then often painted and then leaned Always painted, yeah, and, and, and leaned against a wall or against another wrapped sculpture, uh, which was itself leaning against the wall. Anyway, we'll have pictures on manpodcast.com. <laughs> so you've spoken of the wrapped sculptures as, as being oriented around the body metaphor, with the armature inside the textile functioning as a skeleton and then going out from there. Why was the body a metaphor of interest to you in, in the late 70s and early 80s?
1: Well, I'm, the body is just, you know, as we know, a social and political site. And so, I mean, I'm interested in the body. I'm interested in gendered bodies, but I'm not interested in figuration. So I've always been interested in the body in all its meanings and, and of course, working out of the particular body I am in, but I was not interested in a literal representation or the figure, which for me, the figure is usually confined by the contours of the body. So I was interested in the body, and I think the way I got there originally was the weave paintings that I just described eventually just simply because, uh, happened I moved into what I'm calling a lozenge shape stretched lozenge shaped canvases and that happened because simply because pearl paint on canal street where many of us bought art supplies had all of a sudden these kind of—they uh, weren't just round stretcher bars, which you could always buy round stretcher bars, but they were these kind of ovals with—I mean, they were rounded edges, a rectangle with rounded edges at the ends, what I called a lozenge shape. And anytime there's anything new, we all—all all artists check it out, try it, you know, <laughs> that kind of thing. So I had some of these lozenge-shaped stretcher bars, and I was—I ma- liked. I liked that with the weave paintings because what was happening with the the weave paintings was I had also been, I liked the lumpy and bumpy textured surface I was getting in the paintings, which I related to the surface of our bodies, the skin, what happens on the skin. Painting is always a skin of paint. So the body actually is always there in a certain way, and to emphasize that, just to throw you off, not doing something so exaggerated like what I was doing in the 60s with big-shaped canvases, but something just a little, a little intervention. Is I would take pieces, wads of fabric or newspaper even, and stick it up behind the canvas, so between the stretch bar and the In the the canvas of the painting, in from the back, and it would kind of make what I call little swellings along the edge because just as I had been questioning in my unstretched paintings and with the floor pieces on the as paintings or expanded paintings on the floor, I was interested in questioning just even the. Assumption that the painting surface, the way it goes, and then the canvas goes around the edge of the stretcher bar, is always a right, a perfect right angle, and so I would uh, stick these little wads of newspaper or fabric up from behind, and it would just kind of round that sharp right angle edge, or create a little lump or bump there. And so that, in a subtle way, a very subtle way, most people wouldn't even probably notice it, it altered the painting surface, the painting skin again, in a certain way. So anyway, I had a bunch of these lozenge-shaped stretcher bars. As there were some of them sitting around without their canvas, as they're waiting to be stretched... I just, I don't, I can't tell you why, but on impulse at one time, I took some of my rags, because I always have fabric and rags around, and I just wrapped it around the stretcher bar. And you get a very gendered shape, okay? And again, and then when you're wrapping something around the wood, wooden stretcher bar, the, the wrapping or spiraling of the material fills it out you're building out from that piece of wood on all sides it's not just frontal so it becomes in relief it becomes sculptural but i got to it from the painting stretcher bar and the materials that i'd already been using that are laying around and that kind of is indicative how I work or get to things but that's how I got to the first wrapped sculptures that was from those lath and stretcher bars because they were there and then I liked the abstract form I liked its gendered references I liked that it had that you know always that presence of of the body there in the activation of the materials and in fact, I would say the surfaces on my sculptures and my paintings are really come from the activation of the materials. But that's what was happening with the sculptures. And at first, they would hang on the wall. But then I began to realize, oh, I could do other armatures. But again, I tend to, and this isn't always true, but I often tend to work with found materials or objects partially because for you know for financial reasons, but also I like. I like the references. I like the histories that come with found and repurposed materials and objects. So I started working with, you know, like the ladder shape. Because in New York, on the streets in those days, you could find a lot of old broken ladders. And ladders are interesting. People mend them. They repair them. So I would use those. I could take a ladder and, you know, break it open. And I had two ladders, okay? And then I just began to use those as sort of found forms and wrap them. And then the latter themselves are sort of human scale, if you think about it. And then I began to look at, well, again, what am I getting here? I would take that same way of looking at what I was doing, the way that I learned to look at the work in my group, and say what's going on here. Okay, what? Well, I'm layering. I'm building something out of itself from the inside out. It suggests bodies. It su- suggests gendered bodies. It's both hard, it's soft. It's got marks, lumps and bumps, whatever. You know, I mean, I could go on and on and on and kind of do a visual analysis of the work, and that visual analysis, you know, is what I got from that group basically. So the ladders do become stand-ins for gendered bodies on one level. And they do, in some pieces, as you indicated, touch each other and lean against each other and provide support for each other. Some things can hang on the wall, but many times they sat on the floor and they just leaned against the wall, kind of hanging out and suggesting a group of gendered bodies kind of waiting, waiting for the moment of action or whatever.
0: The ladders and the other works from the mid 70s and into the 80s often have um, open spaces within them. A number of years ago, when Jackie Windsor was on the program, she and I talked about the open spaces in the middle of so much of her work and really in the work of many other women who are responding to big male minimalism. And she talked about it in two ways as as a pointed intentional challenge to big male very industrial you know machined minimalism and as being a, a reference to orifices to being erotic and that and that for her that the those two opposites if you will were were kind of foundational from the start, and I wonder if they functioned
1: totally, yes, not a question both.
0: Were you, I, I guess, similar to to, to to a question I asked earlier, for example, specifically Jackie Windsor, I don't know that you two knew each other, but were you aware, seeing around New York, that women were engaging with big male minimalism that way?
1: There were a few artists, and Jackie's work, she's one of those artists. But yes, I was aware of her work. I mean, we were... We've met, but we're not friends in any way. We did not, you know, exchange things. But there was, there were a number of artists that were kind of of um, Jackie, who's a, I think a little bit older than I am, and artists that were working, or uh, her friends, or that she was working with, who worked conceptually and abstractly out of male. Big male min- minimalism, as you say, and but kind of subverted it in different ways or made it their own in different ways. I mean, you can talk about Eva Hesse that way as well. So, yeah, I mean, it was it was another vocabulary that was in the air, but it all was kind of very experimental at the time.
0: When you moved to the Southwest, in in the mid-1980s, you were living in New Mexico and then taught at the University of Arizona and in that wonderful Western open roadway kind of commuted between them in a, <laughs> in a manner. The, the, the corrugated panels and the straw got me thinking about how so many of your materials coming into the present and the, the wall-mounted chenille-based works have tactility as something that's, that's really important to them, kind of that temptation to touch. I am very
1: interested in the
0: texture of things
1: and the specific the specific materialities and so each of the materials is besides having a visual texture, you know, I'm I'm interested in the specificities of these materials. So like the recycled corrugated roofing tin, I mean, is very interest was interesting to me. Like a lot of materials, I would say I'm first drawn to it simply because of the way it looks, just like you might pick up a beautiful rock or something. But in this case, it's a, quote, the tin of man-made material. But it's now rusted. It's used. It's got a beautiful patina surface. It might be bent. It might have holes in it. And so at the same time, Rusted metal, you know roofing tin is a very specific material, and it's been used for you know probably around a hundred years or something and And it's literally twenty six inches wide. They come in different length panels the The width stays the same. I liked the what we could call almost stripes in the corrugation. That, that was interesting to me, as was the surface color and texture. I liked that it was a building material. I liked that it was a building material that was recycled by people in their everyday lives. So it originally was a roof. Then that got, you know, rusted, and then some, but somebody saved it. it. They used it as a fence. They used it as a chicken coop. Now Harmony Hammond comes along and uses it to make to make something. The roofing material, which brings in the domestic, which is another thing. There's often a domestic reference through the materials in my work, like the linoleum say fr- linoleum fragments. Part of my art practice is just moving stuff around and pulling out conversations between things. And I like it when they don't kind of go together really nicely, because then what's that tension there? What's that tension along the edge? What's the tension between things?
0: There's a work from 1992 in which you mix found materials with paint, with latex rubber, uh, about which we'll talk more in a moment, leaves, um, and it's it's called Inappropriate Longings. It's kind of a triptych plus, if you will, um, as there's a form that extends into the room. And it's one of, you know, and in a way you try something new in it and that you are juxtaposing organic material like the leaves against the industrial materials and the materials that have a history. We mentioned the straw works a moment ago. It's not like you'd never worked with organic material before. But I wonder if in inappropriate longings you found something in in juxtaposing the organic and the discarded industrial that that interested you or that worked.
1: Yeah, because I had been working with these found materials and combining it with you know, different, it could be, it could be natural materials. It could be, you know, what were we calling industrial materials. It could, it could, you know, they were different, different types of materials. I used building materials. They were all kind of in my toolbox, so to speak. And so during those years, especially when I was frequently driving between Galisteo and Tucson on stopping at these abandoned farms, I would just gather what was there, basically. Linoleum, you know, a water trough, a gutter. You know, it could be a piece of fabric. It could be a bucket. But I started going there, actually, for the roofing tin. But I would find these other things. And I began to work with all of them, including panels, uh, my own painting, which... Is kind of you know at that point was like a very Euro Western wet into wet type of painting, so the paint itself uh, was getting thicker and juicier, and and had a presence as well. And so these grew into oh I would say from the late 80s through the 90, early 90s grew into what I referred to as large scale mixed-media installational paintings of which Inappropriate Longings is one of the last ones. And many of them referred very much to the abandoned farms where I was finding the materials because when you go and gather materials, you start to think about the site where you're at. What's what's here? Who's not here? What is this place saying? And it's not so much about landscape, but place it was it was a peopled space, but there's nobody here now. And why are these small family farms abandoned? And it brings up all these issues of everything from, you know, multinational corporate farming to weather issues of weather and drought. And then that's how I began to use these pieces and. And and, and and assemble what I call these mixed media installational paintings because I could use any of these. Some of them have fabric. Some of them have chairs. I began to think about gutters as circulatory systems. Gutters are to move water and waste gutters, but are there these empty gutters, and they they too, like ladders, are often repaired and quite visually interesting, by the way, but there's no life fluids, there is no water on these sites, it's dried up, there's no life fluids, the water troughs are empty, so it was those sites, not and not in the sense of nostalgia about rural America, but using these these as sites of what went on here. You know, what were the violences that the social violences or forces that conspired against this small family farm and what are the violences that went on within the domestic environment of this small family farm? And that takes us to inappropriate longings which is made in the context of there were many human rights amendments, some we wanted passed, some we didn't, around the country. But there was, uh, I think it was uh, Colorado Constitutional Amendment 2 deprived LGBT people of legal protection against discrimination. So there was all this conversation in the air. It's also, of course, conversation about AIDS in the air. And something I read about a hate crime where a woman was, you know, basically murdered because she had a Celebrate Diversity bumper sticker. And this was up in Colorado. So in this case, I'm thinking about all this stuff. And I'm trying to bring a queer presence or lesbian presence into rural into rural America, as well as into the modernist painting field. So you get this three-panel painting, which vaguely, and nobody needs to know it, is somewhat in response to this hate crime. And I have the left-hand panel is linoleum, taken from the farms, fragments, pieces, again, of linoleum, floral, on the left-hand panel. Then I'm painting with the latex rubber, which, of course, is very body and skin referenced. And in the middle panel, you have the dark, you know, burnt sienna, earth-type color with a found linoleum shape that suggests a house. On the right-hand panel is a lot of pieces of linoleum, but they're turned inside out, so you're seeing the back the underside. So it's pieced, it's fragmented. In that left-hand panel, which you don't see from a distance, you get up close and incised into the latex skin. It um, it has the words, God damn dyke, which were words that were at the scene of that uh, hate crime. And so that's there in the in that skin of latex rubber. In front, we have a coffin-like, it sort of calls that up, traditional-shaped water trough, old water trough. But it is now filled with dried leaves that are spilling over on the floor. So it forms a sort of like a tableau or what I call a suggested narrative because i would say that these works that have so many um found materials and objects at this time they they suggested what i call abstract narratives it's not the the story isn't exact it isn't explicit it's open to interpretation but it is in conversation the dry leaves indicate there's no water in this water trough again there's no life fluid in fact the dry leaves are very much in conversation with the floral pattern on the <laughs> linoleum to suggest some sort of narratives of violence because violence there is a lot of violence in my work which people don't talk about too much and abandonment and loss and just struggle to you know to survive and all of that kind of stuff it's not about nostalgia for the t- wonderful rural past It very consciously, or I began to get this while I was working, was very much about inserting that dyke or lesbian presence into what looked like, from a distance, a more pastoral collage or assemblage, inserting that queer presence into rural America and into the modernist painting field. I knew that's what I was doing in that piece
0: well let me jump in on that right hand panel of inappropriate longings you mentioned violence that right hand panel reminds me a lot like a like a of a clifford still composition with its kind of scything forms it's browns it's blacks and what you just said about violence reminded me of of stills line that farm life is all about violence and that's uh one reason he had to leave it behind uh we've mentioned ava hess a couple times and latex rubber once or twice And there are a number of pieces, the Flesh Journal works in the early 1990s, in which you use, which are built from latex rubber, um, which is of course a material closely associated with with Ava Hess. You've talked a lot about Ava Hess with other people over the years. We've talked about her once or twice here already. I'm, I, I, I imagine you must have been delighted for people to make this the association between the Flesh Journal pieces and her work and. Why was making that link so evident important to you?
1: So the latex rubber I start using in the eighties basically with the wrapped sculptures. Some of the wrapped sculptures are covered with liquid latex rubber, which you can buy in different strengths or vicosities and the more you layer it the and, and if you buy different latex from different companies are slightly different colors and the more you layer it the darker it gets and as we all know it is not stable and it darkens with time and in many cases disintegrates so in the fact that it's not stay it's not a stable it's not an archival material and it's very much like our bodies it disintegrates so it's it becomes it not only looks like body like skin but it it, it, it acts like that, you know, so it becomes in and of itself a very loaded material to use and I think you know in her work she used it you know in a very strong way with all those associations and I think when I started using it in the wrapped sculptures. Of the eight my wrap sculptures of the 80s, that I was using it in that same way. Um, again, present to help presence bodies. Now, some of the wrap sculptures were literally painted with a skin of acrylic paint, and some of them were painted with the latex rubber. What I liked about the latex rubber was not only that it uh, exaggerated the body reference, which it does, but I could see the under. Not only was I seeing the wrapping because I could see how one one piece of fabric overlapped another, I could see colors bled through from underneath. And again, working in my state of peripheral control, I knew that red would kind of bleed through in a certain way, or a dark blue might bleed through in a certain way, thereby giving this feeling of showing the inside of the body in the sense of like uh, Monique Wittig's lesbian body this kind of raw interior the blood the sexuality sensuality of the raw interior body the journals came out of a period where i was teaching in Tucson i didn't have much time. I was on you know a zillion academic commu- committees and so forth commuting back and forth and I had a teeny tiny uh studio workspace and I was just pouring latex rubber because while it's usually used for for, um, you know, molds for sculpture, you can make the sculpture out of latex, but I was painting with it, and um, I was just pouring it in old broiler pans that I would get from the Salvation Army or the Goodwill store, and I was literally letting it dry, and, and I could rip it out of the pans, and I would get these pages of latex rubber. So they looked like tablets or pages to me, and then I began to paint, but often incise into the rubber. And that's how these flesh journals uh, came to be. And at the time, like many of us, I was reading, um, you know, and, Trin, Thiem, and ha, different friend feminists and so forth, because we're talking about the 90s. And there, the, the work that I liked so much was often both very political, but very poetic, the writing. And so I would just take phrases, sometimes my own, but very often, you know, listed from these writers, and they would be scratched into the body or on the body, into the body. And I think by doing all that is when I began to really think about what I call the painting body. I mean, the painting is a body because it has a skin on it. But the painting body is also the body that's making the painting. And so there's just kind of a way I move back and forth between the painting object and the, you know, the maker of the painting. That's another painting body.
0: Well, speaking of pages, 20 years ago, almost 20 years ago, you published what remains a crucial and foundational book, Lesbian Art in America. It took you a decade to write. You started it in about 1990. And it's, it's, you know, it's weathered and survived two decades as a standard text, which is a, a pretty big deal. And so you you, you, you made a significant artwork that engaged your research and decision making regarding that book in 1999, um, a work called Small Erasures. But before that book, in the decade you spent writing lesbian art in America, did you find that the research and writing process of that book impacted what you were doing in the studio? art-making-wise?
1: Not directly. It's interesting. I mean, you know, the book did take a a decade to write, a decade while I was commuting and teaching. I don't know how in the hell I did it all. I really don't. Usually, anything I'm writing... It's pretty much, I mean, I can't say it's a separate, totally separated practice, because just, you know, everything here and the way I live my life, it's all so connected. But the writing doesn't translate literally into visual art or, or back or back the other way. There are these rare exceptions, and one is certainly the series of erasures in doing the research for Lesbian Art in America, all of which at the time is, you know, for me anyway, pre-email, so it's primary research, writing back and forth. And I had a very, I had an extensive library myself of, you know, catalogs and alternative publications, and I had lived much of the history. So, you know, as I'm working on all of this, there, I am encountering some work by, work by women, artists who are lesbian, who are, out, that's not like they're closeted, but who don't want to be in the book for various reasons. Usually their comment would be that, you know, the labels are limiting and the work will only be looked at through that lens and they don't want that. And or they're, uh, you know, fearful that that will, you know, ruin their careers. And, and you know, it, with some dealers it might, you know. So anyway, there were these different reasons. A handful of women, a handful of women who are artists and who are lesbian self-identified as lesbians at the time do not want me in the book. So I as I'm thinking about this I'm I mean one of the things about writing a book that become is becomes a history is you're writing a history because the history isn't there. So I realize these women are participating not just in Censorship, but in self censorship, and so I wanted to find some way to presence them in their absence and My way of doing that was to take their letters to me and photocopy them and in and there were small erasures, and then there's the larger series where I blew up the letters, really large in an offset process. And then I would literally cross out, white out with marker certain words, their names, the locations, certain words because it wasn't about giving the specificity. I didn't want the viewer. It wasn't a guessing game. Well, like, who wrote this letter? The point was to presence the self erasure. It wasn't about specific artists. It was the pieces were about this kind of self erasure. And why in the late nineties, during the middle of the queer renaissance, right, we have these women who are often out there in terms of queer publications and so forth not wanting to bring the word lesbian and artist together in any way whatsoever. So that that series, or the two series, which are, like I said, on different scale, are very much about presencing them in their absence. The pieces, not all of them, but most of them are also the small ones for sure, seen through a skin of latex rubber, sometimes dental dams, not always, because, again, so you're seeing through the body, in other words. So that's how that series came to be and you can read the text or not read the text i mean you can you can make out some words but it's not about
0: it's not a puzzle. Right, right. And I should add that the book is, uh, is still in print. I, I haven't been in college myself in a long time, but I imagine that just that about... Well, it
1: was Remainder, but you can get it online, and it's—you it's, it's, it's you know, you, one can get it, and people do get it. I mean, when I go lecture, there's always people coming up to me with the book, and, will you sign it. And it really has a remarkable life and seems to— Uh, have a voice, be an important voice, like you said, 20 years later.
0: I want to finish with two uh, very different bodies of work. One is your ledger drawings, which document the insults women have faced during their careers, but especially late in their careers. And it's probably the work of yours that, or the series of yours, whatever the, the relevant word would be there that is most rooted in air quotes traditional conceptual practice you know words writing wall mounted you think adrian piper for example so first was it an an intentional pointed engagement with 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 conceptualism and and 40 years of conceptualist practice and if it was, were there reasons why that practice became important to you in the mid-2010s?
1: Well, I was aware of it. I mean, I mean, I mean, you know, I'm aware of using words. I'm aware of work over the years that repeats words. I'm aware of to use words, like the way I have used words. You're right. This is a very different way of using words than I had in, in previous work. I mean, words are used often to label or identify, but who's to say it's accurate or true? Or it might be kind of poetic phrasing, association of words and images. And when I have more words, like say there's a piece in the Aldrich show called Chicken Lady, there's a lot of text on two of these metal panels. It tells an actual story. There's a few pieces. And interestingly enough, they tend to be about Homeless people, which I realize after the fact, but it is their stories, it, and it's a very when there's a sto- I don't tell a story unless there's a, I mean, I don't use that much text unless there's a story to be told. So, Dick and Lady is an example of that. But with the ledger drawings, part of it was about thinking about reinscribing words. What does it mean when you take a word? and write it over and over and over and over and over. Does it lose meaning? Does the meaning become intensified even more important? So It was really about re-inscription. But then, of course, we have to ask, well, what are the words I've chosen? Which, as you've indicated, were words that I find people often use with me as a, I don't know, mid-career woman artist, older woman artist, whatever. And sometimes they they think they're being, you know, very polite. Like they don't say old woman artist. They go, an artist of your generation. And the words your generation kind of just stand out there in space, like blinking neon, and it's so weird to me, these words that are, are used to discriminate, even if people aren't intentionally doing it. And so when words, I began to just note down different words like that, like your generation, for instance, you know, or down girl, you know, things like that, that I think had a reference to being an artist of my age longevity of career, stature, whatever. And so I decided to just repeat them over and over and over. And I have over the years, which you wouldn't know, but I have drawn and painted over found ledger books back from the days when I lived on the Bowery in New York and the loft I rented was full of old ledger books from a business that was there. Wow, well, those are just pages I can paint over those. I kind of have a thing about ledger books anyway and journals and diaries. I don't keep visual journals like m- many artists do. I don't usually like them because they're I don't like the way they're they're attached by the spine there. They're, I like loose pieces of paper, so these are lo- uh, the ledger drawings are on loose pieces of paper that are ones that have been torn out of a ledger, and I repeat just over and over a word or a very short phrase that refers to, you know, mid-career women artists or that I've had directed to me or at me. And I just repeat them over and over and over, both to eliminate meaning, but also to kind of claim it and change it in some way.
0: One of your most recent, if not your most recent body of works makes use of chenille, which is a textile that is mostly out of date, but was Pop maybe at its popular heyday in the nineteen twenties or thirties as, as a kind of bedding. It's kind of a soft satiny fabric. First, I guess am I describing it right. And secondly, why was it why was it interesting to you to get up onto canvas?
1: Well, I didn't start with making an I mean, I don't I'm not the kind of artist that, you know, researches something beforehand or I didn't start to make a painting that either looked like Chenille bedspreads or or was about chenille bedspreads, or was about chenille stitching, or anything like that. It was I was just working out of the materials I was using, which were, you know, a, a canvas. But re, and even the canvas was partially recycled from my aikido practice, and other bits and pieces of fabrics, and the grommet, the grommeted holes, and so working out of that from the paintings that were wrapped paintings with these grommeted straps to the field of grommets that I just described. And then I was, in in these recent works, working with some of the fabric, a lot of the fabric, in fact, that I've been archivally affixing to the surface uh, is, is very rough burlap from coffee sacks. So I just cut those open and affix them and I get this really rough texture and it's very frayed and raggy along the edges. And the, I get the seams of the coffee sacks, which are really important to me. I, I, I'm against digital seamlessness. I like the seams in my work to be visible, the con, the place where things are, pieces are connected. So they're very pronounced in the coffee sacks. So I have all that kind of going on there. And then when you're working with grommeted holes, you're literally opening up the, Pictorial or painting surface, but it you're and revealing what's underneath, what's through the hole. And with all the body references, they of course also become body orifices. And so that notion of what's underneath being revealed or even having agency and asserting itself from underneath. So the colors that are underneath asserting themselves through the holes or through places where there are cracks, where the edges of the pieces of burlap don't meet, where that color asserts itself, or even sometimes bleeds slightly into the surface color. And as I was doing this, and I was very interested because the burlap and the seams and the stitching were just so powerful in and of themselves, I started... A series of what I call, I mean, they're all painted what I call a warm white with color asserting itself from underneath. And it was in response to the way that they looked, I thought it was very interesting how they called up chenille bedspreads and things, you know, which because of the raised surfaces, so it's the raised surfaces of how paint globs onto the grommets or if I have pushpins in the surface and the seams, that starts a, re- a physical relief on the painting surface. And that started calling up these chenille bedspreads, which, you know, are often white on white, not necessarily. Then I began to realize what chenille was and, and did some very, you know, cursory Research and I realized. Then I began to think of them. And I thought, well, that's a nice title because this is a again refers to a needle arts. It is like quilting done by puncturing from the underneath or behind. And I began to think of it like quilts in that sense of, well, it's domestic, it's a reference to the domestic environments, and it's like a reference to sort of the coziness of the home, the domestic relaxation and so forth. Even though my paintings don't really, there's an edge to them, they don't really look cozy and soft. Chenille, the bedspreads that we remember, are cozy and soft and tufted. I mean, chenille is literally a tufting of fibers that come through behind. So my works visually look like it. They re-perform chenille, not with needle and thread, but with paint, calling that comfiness up. And in fact, it's it's that tuft that happens through the looping of threads that are punctured from behind, like I said, and then they're cut. And that's what creates those fuzzy tufts. And it's those fuzzy raised tufts in patterns on the surface of the bedspreads, which is why they became called chenilles or French and caterpillar. So there's all those associations of warmth and coziness, and, and there, but an edge because, you know, there's something bleeding through, there's something split open, there's something bleeding into the warm white color. And for me, that's what they're about. And uh, afterwards, I find out that you know there's yes, it there was an economy around it and all that, but I didn't know any of that, and I wasn't thinking about that at the time, nor was I even did I realize that it, that I found out from very cursory reading afterwards that one of the things about the chenille toff set uh, is that it it looks different from different angles. It sometimes looks iridescent, but the fibers, there's nothing there that's iridescent. And that connected with me because, as you probably know, that is something I was... Those concepts that I was using in the darker monochrome paintings where you couldn't, where the surface and color were fugitive, where you could... They were different from different angles depending how light and shadow affect the painting surface. That's still true today. Light and shadow should be listed as the media on the works as well. And at times in my monotypes and in the darker thick paintings, you would think, is she using iridescent paints, metallic paints? but I'm not what it looks like it at times. And that's just like, I found this kind of wonderful parallel with Ch- Chenille, but that's totally after the fact. So the meeting is more like what I explained to you. For me, that's what they're about, really. But I, I think it's a very interesting conversation. I mean, to me, it's interesting that this is what came out of the work itself. The work got me work there, is that's not an entirely different conversation than inappropriate longings.
0: Harmony Hammond, thank you.
1: Well, it's been a pleasure. I appreciate your thoughtful research and questions. It's a very rare thing. So thank you very much. I hope we stay connected.
0: Brooklyn songwriter, multi-instrumentalist, and singer La Rain makes her Los Angeles debut June 22nd in the Getty's annual outdoor concert series off the 405. Enjoy an evening of 90s R&B, musique concrète, and ambient soundscapes amid stunning architecture and sunset views. Learn more at getty.edu slash 360. The Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Sarah Lucas O Naturel, the first American survey of one of the UK's most influential artists. Featuring some of Lucas's most important projects alongside new sculptural works created for the exhibition— O'Natural offers a rare chance to see more than 130 works in photography, collage, sculpture and installation that have never been shown together in the United States. Sarah Lucas O'Natural is on view June 9th through September 1st at the Hammer. Details at hammer.ucla.edu. Hammer Museum, free for good. Welcome back. Next up, Annika E., whose Le Pain Sympathétique from 2014, is on view at the Museum of Contemporary Art Los Angeles in The Foundation of the Museum, MOCA's Collection. Organized by Bennett Simpson and Rebecca Lowry, the exhibition is at MOCA's Geffen Contemporary Building through January 27th next year. E. and I talked in 2017 on the occasion of Trigger, Gender as a Tool, and a Weapon at the New Museum in New York. Annika E., welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast.
2: It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me.
0: An enormous range of your art, whether it addresses our sense of smell or, or or other things, engages with science and scientific methods and examinations. When did you become interested in science? Are we talking about back in childhood?
2: I think that there was always a kind of inquisitive relationship to how things work and a certain kind of, let's say an educated guessing around how things might work. So I think that definitely as a young person, I was interested in science, but I think most artists, especially, you know, in the studio, whether you're aware of your relationship, active relationship to scientific principles and scientific relationship and and solutions, you're dealing with science all the time you know whether it's paint oil paint acrylic paint and you know just like the basics of chemistry and physics and things like that
0: painters back in the the 15th and 16th centuries had to make their own paints and and that involved understanding the chemistry of the thing so as you as you moved into having a a as you moved in kind of a backwards way into having a career as an artist, do you remember what it was that motivated you to mash up scientific method, swabbing things, playing with bacteria and pharmaceuticals and, and, and chemistry, such as scent manufacture? Do you remember what motivated you to mash up that kind of thing with sculpture and installation?
2: Well, you know, I think that having this sort of engagement with science as a tool, it was very possible to incorporate this into my toolkit, so to speak, and without having any kind of hierarchical assignment to science over, let's say, you know, smell or acrylic plastic or something, a material that I might use, or something like deep fried fly, fried flowers or something like that, you know, and just sort of build this kind of vivid, robust repertoire And science was also, it was a conversation that led to becoming a very palpable tool. And certainly the doors got very, very flung open through the residency I did at MIT in 2015. And they had a program that just very intelligently paired science with art and art and science in this very symbiotic way. And they recognized early on that we could enrich each other, these communities, uh, these systems.
0: I wanted to ask about that residency. You must have had some interest in melding the two to have applied for it.
2: Absolutely. Well, you know, and and so much of my work, earlier work with smells and having also independently created perfumes as well and fragrances, you know, that is such a, it's such a core vernacular in my practice. And that I think that that, that was definitely the kind of logical pairing uh, to sort of, you know, kind of move forward into a more rigorous scientific environment and ecosystem.
0: So had you expected to work more on sense at MIT and then found as you as you as you know, to use your metaphor, the door flung open that led you in other ways. Or what was it that you encountered at MIT that was the. The go this way indicator.
2: Well, you know, I was interested in biology and I um, I think that a lot of answers for our species, for our existence in thinking about other species. I think a lot of answers are in biology So, I knew that I was interested in meeting some biologists, whether they be molecular, uh, structural, synthetic biologists. And I happened to meet a synthetic biologist at MIT. And that sort of kind of really helped me to sort of hatch a more ambitious project working with bacteria. But it wasn't necessarily the first time I'd worked with bacteria. I'd certainly worked with kombucha leather, cultivating kombucha and even kind of accidentally worked with bacteria back in 2011 for a a kind of an organic tofu wall sculpture that sort of started uh, uh, growing wild bacteria everywhere. And that was unintended at the time.
0: I I was prepared to ask a question about scent, and, and, and I can't. Pass up the opportunity to ask about bacteria. Had you used bacteria before that, or did it enter itself into your practice of its own volition, so to speak?
2: You mean before the the the, the raw tofu <laughs> culture? No, that would definitely be the the big bang moment <laughs> that sort of did insert itself into the repertoire, and 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 because of my work and my materials you know that a lot of the materials i work with are volatile unstable and i have to have a, a certain kind of agility and a certain sort of a, a, a flexibility and a, a, an ability to just sort of embrace what's happening and to kind of you know move with it and accommodate it and riff and improvise with it which is not to say that control isn't a leitmotif in the work because That's sort of the kind of it's the it's the invisible sort of, you know, soldier really in the work that doesn't get discussed that much or prominently or foregrounded in my work, you know, because, you know, when you're allowing for this kind of slippage, this these leakings, you know, what have you, you know, you have to kind of have some sort of, you know, some some infrastructure, some parameters, because otherwise it's just bottomless chaos.
0: It's probably impossible to tell, but I've been trying to work toward your recent Guggenheim show, which in, involved both bacteria and scent. And, and so I think we've got bacteria. As, as a way of kind of beginning to talk about your use of scent, you did a show at the Kunsthalle Basel in 2015, which involved the creation of a scent that was then used to soak the paper of the show's catalog, which you then encouraged purchasers to burn, which would then release the scent. First, why? And then secondly, do you know of people who actually did it?
2: Well, you know, the book was like an attempt at this kind of self-cannibalism. It was definitely a burn after reading, sort of tongue-in-cheek project. But it's ostensibly a, a kind of... The show was loosely inspired by looking back on the past five, seven years of my production uh, cycle. It's a way of kind of resetting the dials. And and I think that's really important, the kind of uh sort of like temporality, the inner sort of quantum, you know, the, the, the physics of our practice, of our uh sort of creativity, of our imagination, and to sort of revisit that. And I tend to do that kind of rinse, recycle <laughs> kind of uh methodology When it comes to certain aspects like my titles or a certain kind of material that I'll repurpose in a new way instead of just this kind of, you know, cutting off period as though somehow, you know, that history isn't contiguous and that it isn't organic and porous, you know. So it was a way for me to look back and sort of sort of reconfigure and, you know, kind of dice and slice my 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 sculptural language my conceptual language from the past 7 years. And so it felt very urgent to apply that spirit to the to the book. And I had always always dreamt of making a burning incense book because I was always fascinated by the papier d'ami, you know, the, the the sort of French burning incense paper as a room fragrance. And I thought, oh, it would be so fantastic to make an entire book out of it, and uh, you could sort of get immersed in the smell while you're reading about the work. And the the fragrance was inspired by Alzheimer's, and you know we associate the sort of crucible of of of, of our relationship to smell is memory, right? I mean, that's the cornerstone. And yet, I wanted to create a smell around forgetting because I was looking back and it was a kind of a, a sort of like a schizophrenic sort of almost a synesthesia, a synesthesic looking back, that the senses are reordered, that they're sort of chopped up, that they are uh, sort of, they become kind of elastic. And, and it was an attempt to try to reconfigure this in a kind of quantum metaphysical kind of way. And so I did have uh, numerous people who have told me that they did tear off pieces of the book and burn the the smell and read the catalog essays and read about my work. And, and I think it's a, it's a pretty intense experience of me. It's a very assertive move on my part to just go so many levels down into the psychic experience, the emotional the, the sort of the sensorial, the biological, you know?
0: You briefly mentioned the relationship between scent and memory. Several years before you did the Kunsthalle Basel project slash catalog slash burning suggestion thing, you, in a, in a, in a 2012 interview with Kriti Upadhe for Zing magazine, you said that you wanted people who saw your work to, quote, be prepared to crank up the memory machine. So is is what you're suggesting that you found scent maybe to be the best or most specific or most immersive way to do that?
2: Certainly on a level, it can be. I think that I wanted to tap into this emotional, psychic vessels that we all are and constantly shifting at that, you know, and to sort of be able to tap into that through smells In the work so that you're not explicitly experiencing that which is physical and material in terms of a certain kind of, you know, object oriented anchoring experience, but that there's this sort of immaterial, powerful sort of force that is happening that's so unique and customized towards the individual and that no two experiences could really be alike or identicals for that matter, but that there are sort of common threads that we can, you know, sort of build a cohesive discussion around or that we can build empathy around, you know? I mean, I think empathy can be universal and specific and singular at the same time. So we've
0: talked about bacteria and we've talked about scent and you kind of brought those two related things together in in the Guggenheim show. What was your hoped-for relationship between the bacteria that you grew for force majeure, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, and the scent that you had emitted from a canister, a piece called Immigrant Caucus?
2: Well, I think that I think I, I was trying to tap into a number of things. I mean, there was a lot of complex layers to the works themselves and also the relationship the sort of vectors that I hope were, you know, created with the works. I started the exhibition, really started to rigorously jump into the exhibition-making process. You know, Trump had just become elected president, and I, like most people, was just flummoxed and really sad and angry and, and, and morose, and I... Had to stop what I was doing. I didn't know how to how to address this. That felt very urgent. That I had to address it in the work. You know, politics is always always very front and center in the work. Not as it is a certain kind of you know policy or some kind of you know mandate in the work. But it's it, you know my work is it exists in the world. It addresses the world at large. So it's impossible to avoid a political, topical sort of, you know, historical issues. And so with this, you know, dissent, I wanted, to, I wanted to address these notions of nationalism that's been on the rise, you know, notions of white supremacy, also, you know, this proposal of the Muslim ban, all of these things. And so I wanted to tackle ethnicity and in relation to smell. And I wanted to work with the limits of science around that. I wanted to talk about stereotypes and prejudices around smells. And also when I say limits of science, I worked with a forensic chemist, for example, for one component of creating the smell of Asian American females combined with carpenter ants.
0: And if I could just jump in, that's a relationship that that you and the Guggenheim underscored, and some of the images made available to promote and yeah to promote the show. So there are uh, vials of something that can be understood, you know, with a little bit of text to be sent, and then there are carpenter ants walking around them.
2: Right, but the also carpenter ants are also incorporated into the smell.
0: Right, right. I was just trying to build the constellation.
2: Exactly, exactly. Yes, and that also speaks to the the biofiction, which is a term that a very, very good colleague of mine, Carolyn Jones, has termed and coined for the kind of work that I make. It's this kind of fiction that is created through biography and biology. And so, but I wanted to, you know, work with the limits of science insofar as you cannot really qualify through taking uh, samples of certain ethnic groups that one ethnic group definitively smells like this, concentration A, versus another ethnic group smelling like concentration B or something like that, you know, because of the different components of what comprises an individual smell, which is ultimately, you know, your personal microbiome, your, your gut bacteria, your, your diet, and your tertiary, which is something like your shampoo, your body lotion, your your deodorant, that sort of thing, that gets you know absorbed into your body, your pores. So working with a, um, you know, I, I I was able to get a, a chemical reading of an Asian American female smell, and uh, combining that with the carpenter and So that was transmitted in, in, and installed in this sort of gated, pen, penned-in area, just sort of kind of reminiscent of a kind of holding cell for people in a very sort of dystopic scenario, you know, of, of people who would maybe not be allowed into the country or be deported from the country.
0: And there were kind of canisters on the ground, I'm not sure I'm using the right word, but that would, you know, that that flushed out the visual thing that people would see as they walked through that, that, that gate, that portal.
2: Yes, insect canisters that were transmitting the smell, the scent, which is also like part of the grounding visual uh, sort of narrative around, you know, that relates to the ant diorama And what have you, but also the conjuring. But really, I wanted to—I wanted this sort of this this biofiction to the ability to suggest that if you internalize the smell, you take in the molecules, that you would be able to walk around into the rest of the exhibition with the perception of an Asian American female and the perception of an ant, which speaks to my interest in post-humanism. It addresses this ability to take on the perception of a different species and to have an awareness and a consciousness and empathy for other living forms and other species where the humans aren't at the top of this hierarchical pyramid of existence.
0: Do you think people could figure that out or did figure that out from being in the show or is that background mostly important for you as as
2: you create anything is possible (laughs) (laughs) i think that i can't say definitively yes or no because again you know smell is so powerful and that when you are experiencing it and you are taking it in inhaling it into your body and you're walking through that you are altered your your chemicals are jostled you know that you're you're accommodating something that is 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 quite new and foreign I think that it's very possible that you could have experienced some sort of glimpse into this, this sort of hybrid existence. You know, I mean, this, this hybrid is, is a very a strong uh, sort of drive that I had in creating this scent, this fragrance, and also this hybrid consciousness that I was trying to trigger throughout the exhibition. And that's, what I'm attempting to do in a very not passive way, you know, but it's possible. It is possible. And that is something that, that was really, I think it came from a, a kind of an impossibility, which was the premise that I started the exhibition making process with, which is I wanted to create a drug that would allow someone like me, a human female to be able to, if I took the drug, I would be able to experience the consciousness and perception of another human being or another different species, let's say a coral reef or something. And of course I brought that to my biologists at Columbia University at their labs. And of course they told me, well, you know, biologically it's impossible. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yes. And I thought, come on guys, you know, uh, you must have some, some secret that we don't know about. But of course, no, I'd have to, you know, remap the shape of my brain to your brain if I wanted to experience your perception and your consciousness. And we just don't have the technology for that yet. But the the exhibition making what is birthed through this kind of impossibility, which, of course, is a euphemism for a fiction, you know, a certain kind of biofiction.
0: You know, we keep talking about alchemy, you know, the use of chemistry to make something new and different without talking about alchemy. Alchemy has a long relationship to visual art. In fact, the first representation of the three primary colors came in an 18th century Italian alchemy text. Are are you specifically interested in in alchemy or is it just kind of part and parcel?
2: I think it's impossible for me to not work with alchemy, through alchemy, and I think that that is incredibly a a, a certain charged component to my practice, that it's almost, sometimes I take it for granted because it's just a given that alchemy is, you know, foregrounded, it is very much a sort of interest of mine, but I don't necessarily isolate it as a subject, as an inquiry, as a kind of, you know, a field of study, a scholarly pursuit, or something like that, because it, it is—it's just—I it, it, think it activates most of my work, and I think that it's—it's it's very much a part of what I do, and and I and I think it's—it's—it's it's, it's very important to recognize that.
0: One of the two pieces of yours up or about to be up as we're as we're taping at the new museum is titled "I'm Every Woman I Ever Met." It has pearls and peanuts in kind of vacuum. Formed and sealed plexi. Pearls are a material that come out of kind of what we've been discussing, right? Oysters make them by, by mixing their own body, if you will, chemistry with an adjutant such as a grain of sand. And I'm guessing that's one of the reasons why you use pearls a good bit. You, you, you like that idea that that's how we get pearls. Tell me about peanuts. Why mash up? Why put together peanuts with pearls?
2: I've been fascinated by this kind of like geopolitical history around nuts. <laughs> peanuts are are, are very, they're, they're kind of evil, you know? I mean, well, first of all, they're very fatty. And, you know, it's it's very, very emblematic of the American nut, right? And for, for a very long time, uh, you know, peanuts were subsidized by the American government to allow peanuts to have a fair leg up in the nut market <laughs> and so there's this whole sort of like you know political sort of controversy and entanglement around the the international market of nuts and i think that i was fascinated by researching nuts and how it reflects onto the sort of like these very sort of like unfair sort of monopolies and and unfair tariffs that were imposed on developing countries nuts and how America really, if you start to research like through different industries and through agriculture, again, going to the biology of how American imperialism came to the rise and how it became sustained that way, you know, and peanuts were largely responsible through the agricultural uh, sort of system. And to me, peanuts had always represented a very sort of sinister <laughs> kind of persona. And, and it also, you know, to me, had a kind of like a very masculine, you know, there's the Mr. Peanut character of the planters, peanut, you know, character. And so that was sort of where I was coming from, the, the riffing of that, this sort of geopolitical you know, imperialism of America. And then also this very patriarchal, sort of relationship to that nut
0: maybe i was reading too much into the into the title of the work which again is i'm every woman i ever met because i was guessing because thinking would be too strong a word that peanut was the the, the peanuts were a metaphor for ovaries because two because a peanut is kind of in, in, in 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 you know the shape of a peanut kind of recalls the shape of, of, of ovaries connected by tubes, but I'm guessing I'm wrong. I mean, I'm apparently I am wrong.
2: No, I actually really like your version a lot. (laughs) (laughs) That's a very poetic uh, reading of the work and I actually really like it, but no, no, I wasn't necessarily thinking about that, but that doesn't mean you're wrong. And I think that, you know, what an artist might have been thinking at the time that doesn't necessarily mean that that's what the work is about. Does that make sense? You oh, know. I'd oh, t-
0: it does. We love artists who allow open-ended readings, interpretations of their work.
2: And I don't even think, I would even go as far as to say that I don't even know if an artist is really the right person to talk about what that work is. And, you know, I mean, I know we get into like lots of different areas about authorship and things like that, but there's a certain kind of motivation that is certainly steered by an artist. But when it all, kind of comes together and shakes out in the experiential realm. The artist is certainly not the expert, in my opinion, you know, because how can I say that, you know, like having put the work together, birthed it, and and just sort of steered it in a direction, but then it's out there in the world. I don't really have any purchase on that experience. And so I think your interpretation is Probably better than my own. I mean, not across the board, but in this instance, I think it's quite
0: good. Phew. Anaki, thanks so much.
2: Okay, thanks for having me. It was really fun.
0: That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program.